I'm Sonia Morton Firth and you're tuned in to the Sonia Morton Firth Show. Today my guest is Steve Carr. Steve is one of the most prevalent advocates for mental health, both in the UK and globally. He's also a speaker, coach and pilot. Five years ago, Steve was addicted to drugs, homeless and suffered a mental breakdown. Steve now provides mental health and suicide prevention training to companies. Watch this interview as we talk about how to spot the signs of a loved one who may be contemplating suicide. Steve, thank you so much for being a guest on my show today. Uh, it's lovely to have you here. And we've, we've like nearly had this interview about three times. <laughs> And I think each time we've gone into lockdown, we've been unable to make it happen. But I'm glad yeah. to see you here today. How are you doing? Yeah, thank you for inviting me on, Sonia. And uh, yeah, absolutely right. We've tried to do this uh, two, three times now. And then yeah, Boris comes on and says, you know what? You just need to stay in that little bit longer, please. Um, so it's been very difficult for us to try and get together. But yes, I'm well. I'm very well, thank you. Um, given the current circumstances, it's, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I'm well. How are you? Well, I, I'm good, and I do want to definitely talk about the current circumstances for anyone that's watching and, and tuning in. We're, we're now in lockdown three, two, can't remember. But basically, um, I, I think there's a lot of people out there that are, are suffering. Um, it's got to the stage where... It's just relentless now, and I'm sure there isn't anybody um, that hasn't suffered in one one way or in another to some degree or another. Um, but before we get on to that, Steve, you are very passionate about mental health issues. Um, so tell me a little bit about where your passion begun. What, why are you so passionate? Tell me about your story. Yeah, certainly. Um, I'm going to take you back in time um, to 1976. I love um, it. I love it. I was born then. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so was I, funny enough. I, I was born in 1976. I uh, grew up in the 80s, um, so I was an 80s child. And uh, I grew up in a place called Swindon, so it's like sandwiched just between uh, Reading and Bristol. Uh, so I'm from a little town in uh, called Swindon. And um, grew up mother father into um into a small family uh, brother sister and um yeah we were we, we were not the closest of family and um, there was always the, the, this sibling rivalry uh between me and my older brother um and I, I shared a bedroom with my older brother it was weird it was a weird kind of setup because he loved heavy metal music and um, I loved rave music. So it was weird. I had all these flyers of raves and everything on the wall this side, and he had heavy metal. I still love rave music. Yeah, but there was a clash. Um, so, you know, you could often hear yeah. a, a combination of rave versus heavy metal music and uh, seeing whose stereo would go the loudest. I, I think my memory serves me rightly. I had an Amstrad. I can't quite remember what model it was, but you know those you know, the ones that stand quite high glass front yeah, door? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I remember I had one of them. And um, yeah, so uh, my dad would work. He would go out during the day and work. He was a mechanic by trade. And um, my mother was a stay-at-home housewife. Uh, so she would look after us three children. My folks would do the best that they could with what they had. Um, we were not rich by any means. Um, we were very poor, to be honest with you. Um, I do remember quite often there were times that my parents would send me to the shop 
they both smoke and I just remember um, sending me down the shop with this list and, uh, and a note for the shopkeeper please could you give Steve 10 players number 10 that's what they were at the time um 10 cigarettes yeah. until yeah, past the ten. Oh my god! <laughs> I remember them actually because that was my first cigarette that I stole parents years ago. Um, but yeah, go go down to the shop, and my parents say, "Can I get this on tick until the next Friday, till we get paid?" And I just always remember doing this throughout the week. And then the weekend, um, we lived like kings at the weekend, and my dad would get paid. Um, and I just remember these house burgers like this that, were, that my mum used to cook at weekends. And it was quite nice, really fun times. Um, but equally, uh, very bad times, very bad times. Um, it was very traumatic for me growing up um, in my family. So my parents, both of my parents, come from very large families. And so my mother came from a family of 13. Uh, my dad comes from a family of eight. And again, it was very difficult times for them when they were younger. And so everything that they had learned um, literally got passed down and it was kind of very limited um, education that we were given. Um, so I didn't do too well at school. And um, all through my teenage years, it seemed to be almost like a day-to-day -day struggle. Um, things like clothing, food, um, money was very scarce back then. Um, like I say, it was only my dad that was working. I just remember um, several times in my youth that we would have a, a Sunday lunch, we would have beef on a Sunday, we'd have like bread and dripping sandwiches throughout the week. Um, so, it would, you know, we couldn't actually afford to put anything within the sandwiches like jam or, you know, uh, and dripping. And those were the kind of things that, you know, that we would eat. Um, so just remember it being very, very difficult. And by the age of 14, literally, all I wanted to do was escape that life. I didn't want to be part of that life. Um, it was very abusive. It was very toxic. There was the physical abuse and there was the psychological abuse. Um, more so towards my older brother. And um, it was something that I couldn't really deal with. So every time I would go out, I'd kind of associate with people like me from families like, like mine was. And um, by the age of 14, I'd started drinking. Um, so I was drinking with a cider and like that, you know. I remember drinking cider through a straw because it got you even more drunk. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. We, we, yeah, yeah, we did something similar. It was like piss the bottom of the can and the bottom of the can in parks in parks so that was a, a favorite pastime but then then it it, it progressed because with the tolerance level was getting so much that you know, we were just needing more and more and more and so that progressed onto um progressed onto illegal drugs so things like um, marijuana that was to start with um then lsd and speed and this was all by the age of 14. Mm. And just because I was trying to manage the home life, um, either that would disassociate from me, I can't really figure out which one it was. Um, but we were doing this, and I was doing this at school from the age of 14. And um, I just remember I was, I was 15 at the time, and it was Friday the 13th of September 1991. And by this time, my brother was out to work with my dad. Um, so he was a training mechanic. Um, used to ride a motorbike to work and I just remember he's coming down to breakfast in the morning and I was getting ready for school and um, he said to me Steve do you want to go and meet me tonight um, I'm having a drink with my new girlfriend it's called Acres Way in Swindon 
and I just look at it. No, what would I want to do that for? Now, again, because of this, you know, we didn't get on so well. Yeah, yeah. Um, he said, okay, no worries. And he just went off to work and I left for school. And so I went to school, come back that evening, got changed, went out, thought nothing of it. So um, I came back and um, it was still fairly light by the time I came back. So it was around about eight o'clock um, in September. And I just remember walking into my house um, my dad is pacing up and down. Now, my dad isn't a pacer. Um, he normally sat at home watching Blockbuster or something, you know, when he finishes work. But tonight, that night was very different. The atmosphere was very tense. Something was wrong, but we didn't know what. So when I walked in, I could see that he was walking up and down. And um, I said, Dad, what's going on? And he said, there's been an accident. Said, there's been an accident where your brother's got to. Um, and I, I'm... I don't know. I haven't heard from him. He should be home soon. So we'll hang on and wait and see. So nine o'clock come round and um, we still hadn't heard from my brother. So my dad went down to the sink. And um, when he arrived back, he said, I don't know what's going on, but there's ambulance, there's police cars, there's the fire brigade, and there's the air ambulance there. Um, so we knew it was something big. Um, the road had been shut off by then. So we heard on the radio uh, that there'd been a car crash. And um, a couple more hours go past. And uh, we're coming towards 11 o'clock now. And uh, we're all worried. My brother should have been home an hour ago. And so, uh, just gone 11 o'clock, uh, there was a knock at the door. And um, we remember, well, I vaguely remember that two police officers stood at the front door. My dad opened the door. And the, we were all in the living room. We could see through to the front door. And um, the police officer there said, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Carr. And we knew something then that, that something there was wrong. And uh, they said, to, I'm afraid we have some bad news. Your son, Paul, he was killed in a car accident earlier this evening. Uh, what had happened was, um, as I said, my brother was at this uh, this place called Akersville in Swindon uh, meeting his new girlfriend. And um, there was a bunch of other kids there as well that kind of like hung around there, the youngest being seven and the eldest was 18. And um, this particular evening, a couple of guys had finished work and said, um, should we go for a drink? And they went to the pub for a drink and um, said, should we drive home? And so they both got into their cars and drove home. They were racing along this very long stretch of road, which is where my brother and his friends were. And um, it was coming up to an industrial estate where the children were sat, and there was a turn-in opposite where the children were sat. And a car comes pulling out of the industrial estate, and the two cars that were racing didn't quite see this car that was coming out of the industrial estate. So until it was too late, this car pulls out, cars are racing, one in front brakes, one behind didn't see it, and crashed into the back and across the road, rolled over the bench, killed all five children. Oh my God, all five children. So, so I mean, that must have been, well, incredibly traumatic for you and your parents at the time. Um, and, and, you know, we are talking quite a long time ago. Mm. How did that then have repercussions on your life following that? Oh, oh first of all, did you... Did you have any help? Were there, was there anyone on hand to give you or your family any sort of guidance, help, counselling? Mm, really good question. And there was. There, there was plenty of help. Now, we've got to think about things back in 1991. 
So this is when it happened. In 1991, if you went for any type of help, your mental health or told that you were struggling, especially uh, for a male, there was still that fear of being locked up, being told that you were crazy, being told that there was something around it. it was still this um perception that it was you know that, that back in victorian times we were locked up um so my father said no um we're not going to accept any help and we didn't and sadly uh we didn't take any help and we didn't go for it um because my father said it, it would be okay you know he would look after us all but imagine being the age that we are now so that was the age my father was at. So I'm 44. It was the age my father was at when he lost his son. Said, yeah, of course. He, I mean, I'll he, deal with that's this. as well. Yeah, and then and 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 also not not just taking on um, his his own grief, but also the grief of the whole family. That that sort of I guess masculine role model back then was very much you know we take on we we look after the whole family and. Um, we can't talk about grief or anything about emotions because that's just not what men did did in those days. Very true. You know, we, again, we look back to 1991. The education that I had was what my parents had. It was man up, big boys don't cry, we'll yeah. deal. We don't take it outside of the family. We'll sweep it under the carpet and, you know, hope it goes away. But that was probably one of the biggest mistakes ever um, just quite simply because within a year my parents had divorced because we were all turning on each other because we didn't know how to express emotions, we didn't know how to talk, we didn't know how to say I need help uh, because we'd never been shown, never been taught and so that year after my parents had uh, got divorced my father then asked me at 16 years of age to leave the family home. Wow because I was going through my own grieving, which meant I was going out, drinking more, taking more drugs. Um, but sadly, I was coming home and it was, you know, we were all, all over the place. We didn't know how to reach out for help. So this was my coping mechanism. And could you turn to, to your mum at that time? I know you said your parents were divorced. Did you have any family members that, that could look after you? No, sadly not. Um, and at 16, when my mum moved away, um, I haven't seen her since I was 16. Um, she moved away and um, she created a new life for herself. So I couldn't reach out to my mum because she was going through her own grieving and also didn't want to reach out for help. So I believe she, you know, she went down the same road, which was just mask the issue um, with something that will relieve the pain temporarily. Wow, that's that's awful. So I mean, this awful traumatic event basically split up your 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 whole family. Um, so coming a little bit more to sort of where we are now or, or maybe over the last sort of decade, how did that, did that affect you? Because I mean, you know, you had that incident um, as, a, as a child. Um, now I know a little bit about post-traumatic stress and I, I don't know if that if you were later on in life diagnosed, but that would have come up again, I presume in, in, in later on in life. How, how did that sort of manifest itself? Yeah, um, and it did 25 years later. Um, so all throughout my uh, the 20s and 30s, I, there was something going on underneath the surface. So how this manifested itself in, is in my daily life was I would mask things. I would always be happy to people. Um, because I, I knew pain and I didn't want to be unhappy. I didn't want other people to be 
um, this would manifest itself in me trying to be happy all the time. But when somebody got close, when somebody got close to me, it seemed to be like every two years, I would either quit the job or when somebody started to ask questions about my password, um, I pushed them all away. So this would continue all the way until I was uh, 30 years of age when um, I spoke to my dad again. So I didn't speak to my dad from 16 until 30. And then I said, Dad, you know what? I'm really struggling right now, but I'd love to come home um, to save for a house. So this was 2008. And do you remember the, what happened in 2008? Yeah, yes. It was the banking crisis. I was, in the, I was right back in the middle of it. But yeah, sorry, yeah. I remember 2008. Um, you know, people look at. Uh, uh, I mean, it wasn't. It wasn't. A, it was a crisis. It was. It was sort of a. It was a global crisis, but it didn't affect anywhere near as many people as, as this current crisis pandemic that we're in. Um, because it because it was so focused on financials and the banking area, and although it did affect lots of other people that maybe had houses that were defaulting, um, you know, it wasn't. It wasn't on the same scale as as what we're seeing now. Absolutely. And at that point, um, I did what many people did and capitalized on the downturn. So um, I got a mortgage, a 100% mortgage with Northern Rock. Um, at Newcastle. <laughs> I remember Northern Rock. Sadly, don't exist <laughs> anymore. But yes, no, my first building no. society when I was little yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, so, so got 100% mortgage free then. Um, I was working as a successful business development manager for Unilever at the time. Life was good. I uh, had a great partner, had a little bit of money in the bank, say a little bit. Um, I put everything to get my house on my credit card. Um, so it's kind of maxed out. But you know what? Life was good. Had a company car, great partner, um, you know, money in the bank. On, it was all kind of, it was more materialistic stuff than, you know, than, than, than anything in depth. And I just remember I was, I was out one night and I was a real socialite, I used to go out all of the time. Um, just, I guess, because I didn't want to be on my own. I was, in, I was uncomfortable in myself and my own skin. So I thought if I just go out, it will help. Um, so I was going out and I just remember uh, one night, one of the guys that I used to go to the gym with said, uh, Steve, we're going to do uh, a line of coke. Do you want to join us? But well, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll give it a go. And so had this one line of coke and felt amazing. I thought it was really, you know, gave me the confidence I've never experienced before. And it was great. I really loved it. I really fell in love with it um, to the extent where I became an addict and I didn't know. Um, it just crept up on me. So what happened was I would do that one line. And then over a period of less than a month, it progressed to one a day, um, one gram a day. So then from one gram a day, um, it then got into three, four grams a day. So it got to the extent where it was 100 pounds a day. Okay, now I perform. And were you uh, able to function at work? And uh, well, well, never mind the, the cost implications of, of buying that amount of, of drugs. But also, you know, I guess, on you know, you say you've got this, this good job, company car. Um, I mean, how did it affect, affect your whole work life? I actually destroyed it, actually destroyed my work life. Um, but where I bought my house so cheap, I bought it for £90,000. Um, within six months, I completely renovated it. It was a bit of a mess um, and had it revalued at 110. Um, so at this point, I thought, well, I've got 20,000 equity in the house. So I quit the job, um, literally 
spent all that £20,000 on cocaine. Oh, my God. Stopped paying the mortgage, stopped going to work, and it was short, very short-lived, that period. Um, so everything that I had in the house, um, I sold. So I literally had, it was, it was a real lad's pad. Um, had everything brand new in there, um, had you know, stereo throughout the house in the ceilings, remote control infrared, remote control lighting and uh, blinds. It was it was beautiful house, um, but a whole lot went until I was sleeping in my own house with a repossession notice in the window, just sleeping in a sleeping bag. From that point, sorry, of, of where you took your first line of cocaine to where you were there in your house uh, with the repossession sign, how long are we talking in, in, in terms of the time? That uh, It was a year. a year. So it was a year between me having the house and losing the house. Okay, so what, what happened when you, when you, lost, the, you lost the house? Um, where did you live after that? Uh, that's when I become homeless, um, not homeless in the sense of sofa surfing, homeless in the sense of living on the streets. Um, so I was on the streets for a short period in Swindon um, because I didn't want anybody to know what was going on. So what I ended up doing was uh, push everyone away, pushed all of my friends away, pushed all of my family away. I didn't want anybody to know my dirty little secret, what was going on for me. Um, I knew if I had said it, it would become real. So I never wanted it to be real. Um, but even so, at this point, when I got to my lowest point, where I'd lost everything, where I'd become homeless, living on the streets, it still wasn't enough. A friend of mine, uh, Signe, and a friend of mine uh, came and spoke to me on the streets, he said, what the hell has happened? I said, I knew you when you were doing really well. You were social, like everything was new for you. I said, yeah, it was materialistic I didn't tell him still didn't tell him what had gone on um but he helped me out for a short period let me stay with him let me stay with his family until I was back on my feet again now I couldn't afford to do drugs at this point um but he helped me find another job and so um I lied my way into several jobs I lied my way to get back into work um, because I'd been sacked from most of the jobs that I'd been in because of time off, because of um, uh, not being able to perform at work. So they thought it was performance related. It was always an issue. There was always a drama, always something going on. Um, and this would continue until 2015. And in 2015, uh, when I was 40 years of age, um, I had a breakdown at work. And so I was uh, at work and everything just got too much, and I literally just broke down into it. And I knew that there was something wrong. So where you were in it, so in this current job, you're back on your feet, you're in the current job, and, and, and you had a, a breakdown, essentially, everything that had gone on in the past. What, what did you do at that moment? What did the, the people at work say? Were, were you given any help or time off or um, assistance? Yeah, again, this was just five years ago, and it was a very, very large global organization, very well known, and they had no EAP, no mental health first aiders, no occupational health, no allies, nobody there for me to speak to that I could say, well, it was a mental health issue. But still, I wasn't ready to accept that it was. So, so you not were, being ready. 
you weren't even able to verbalize and say, look, guys, I, I need help. This is this is an issue. This is something that's that's affected me for years. Um, I, I, I don't know what to do about it. And it's, you couldn't say those words. No, I couldn't say those words because, again, I was uh, I was educated that speaking those words and saying that I needed help and support was a weakness. And did so, they, you know, it deep down, did you have the realization? Because because they people say, you know, it's it's the realization. Did you have that realization? Oh yes, absolutely. And it came, um, and it came like I mean, like thunder. It was. Um, I just remember um, this period when I'd had breakdown. I was off with work-related stress for a month. And um, over that period, I thought, I really need to kind of figure out what's going on here, but I still wasn't ready to accept that I needed help. I was in a very bad way. Um, so I went back to work. And that month, I was placed or invited in for a meeting with the organization. They placed me on a performance improvement plan. Do you know what they are? Are you aware yes, of? Yes, yes. Sorry, just that whole corporate life, just, uh, uh, it just makes me a bit shuddery. Um, but yeah, I remember the old PMPs. Yeah, well, I, well, I was, you know, I, I had to do them and I was also a manager of staff, so I had to, to give it to my staff as well. So yeah, I remember PMPs. Yeah, it was, uh, it was awful. So I was placed on a performance improvement plan. Um, and the sad thing about it was, is I knew I could do my job. They knew that I could do the job because they wouldn't have employed me if I couldn't. But what I couldn't tell them is it wasn't performance related. It was my mental health. It was my mental health was in deterioration. So at this point, it was spiraling out of control. And there was lots of other things going on. There was lots, you know, there's biological, psychological, lots of different things going on for me, plus history, all of these things coming together to just form one mass explosion. And that's what happened. When I got back, they then said within a month, you know, your performance has declined um, to the extent where I'm, um, we're afraid we've got to let you go. Um, so they actually fired me and said, you know what, that, you're not performing. Um, so they'd fired me, and that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. And I just remember going home at that point, no friends, no family, um, nothing really going on. And I thought, you know what, I can't deal with this pain anymore. I don't want to deal with this pain. I don't want to deal with what life has given me. Um, you know what, I'm going to end my life by suicide. And it was that night um, that I went home and um, just bought obscene amount of drink and drugs and um attempted to drink all of it take all of it in one go um and um i came through that in fact i came through it a couple of times and i tried one more time in that month so that wasn't one the first more. so how many suicide attempts did you make three it was three in 2015 and it was on the third attempt that i remember vividly and I just remember slipping in and out of unconsciousness nearly all night. And I'd just seen these figures. There was like my brother, my man, and two other, two other faces, this image. And my brother said, come with us. Come with us, you'll be fine, you'll be safe now. And it was from there, it was, I knew that I needed help. Um, and I said, if I come through this, I just remember the nights that I would just be crying in so much pain, isolated for Christmases and periods, all on my own, in bed sits, you know, just, just, just awful for years and years and years. And I said to that night, uh, if God, if you help me, if you bring me through this, 
not only will I pray every single day, but I will change my life. I will get help. And it was that day that I did, the very next day. Um, after taking everything that I had, I rang my GP and said some of the hardest words I ever, ever deserved. I need help. I'm a cocaine addict. Uh, I think I'm going to die if I don't know. Um, and it was then that my GP said, okay, have you, we've got an appointment for you. Um, come in now. Wow. Um, so, <laughs> yes. And, and, and if, you, if, you, if you look back, I mean, what horrendous times, but that, that turning point was actually you asking for help. Um, but it got to the point where you, you may not be sitting here today had, had you know had had the the suicide attempts actually gone through or worked yet you'd seen your brother and your family talk to you and it was that point that sort of the spiritual point of i need help god's given me another chance whatever you believe i guess you know um you've been given another chance so from that point how did that that change your life because i guess that must be um, <laughs> If you can think of sort of turning points in your life, that's clearly got to be a, a massive turning point for you. Um, and, you know, I know now, Steve, you, you're doing so much work um, helping others with their mental health issues. You've, you've created your own courses and you're going into companies now and helping companies with their employees. Um, and right now, you know, as I say, we're, we're going through this global pandemic and mental health issue is at the top of everybody's minds because it, it has affected every single one of us. Uh, sorry, I've just sort of thrown a lot at you there. What, 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 when you look back at that, how did that affect where you are now? Did you, did you think then at that moment, right, I want to help people? Gosh, no, absolutely not. Um, it was the last thing on my mind because I knew that I needed help. Um, so the last thing on my mind was to help other people. The first thing was if I needed help first. Um, and it never crossed my mind in the early stages that I would come in to be serving people, to helping people, to helping them to understand recovery is indeed possible. At the very beginning of the journey, um, I had a choice, and that choice was um, I could stay with the diagnosis and I was diagnosed with borderline post-traumatic stress disorder, high function anxiety, work-related stress, depression, unresolved childhood trauma and addiction all in one go and I had a choice at that point it was okay I could stay with this diagnosis take medication or I can try and find out what help is available for me and others that had experienced similar so at the time, um, uh, I was staying with a friend and I was claiming benefits. And um, I just remember Friday afternoon and uh, the, the benefits agency said, sorry, Steve, we haven't paid you. Um, you know what, if you just come in, sign this document, we'll get it paid for you in the next couple of hours. I said, uh, okay, so it's like three o'clock on a Friday afternoon. So go into Swindon Town Centre, sign this document, come back. They said, we should be paying you in the next couple of hours. Now, bearing in mind they close at six, I do have to pay my rent this day as well. And um, everything kind of, yeah, it kind of went wrong from this point onwards. So I went back home and I was sat next to my landlady. She said, have you got the rent? Like, um, I haven't been paid from the DWP yet. Five o'clock, I give them a call. Um, bearing in mind they close at six. Five to six, somebody answered the phone. And I thought, great, 
I'll speak to somebody. Within 30 seconds, somebody hung up. Oh my God. And, and look, we've all been there. Uh, it's usually with a service provider, you finally got through and then they put the phone down, but not quite a situation like this. Yeah. So I start to panic. Um, and, and luckily she sat next to me when it happened. And I said, I can't afford to pay you. Um, she was far from empathetic and said, well, you can't really afford to stay. She didn't even so, let you stay because she, she could see, presumably, I mean, that you were trying and that the money was going to go through. It was just a matter of a day or two. Mm, yeah. yeah. Uh, my thoughts, too. And she didn't However, show any sort of kindness or sympathy just to say, OK, I'll give you some grace of a week or a couple of days. Uh, no, because sadly, um, the DWP, this wasn't their first time that they'd done that. It was probably the fourth time. So by now, she's really annoyed and that this seems to be an ongoing thing. Um, so I, I, I felt the frustration. Um, but she said at this point, we, you, we just can't live here. Um, you're going to have to find somewhere else. So it's this point, I've just been diagnosed and I've got this diagnosis and I then had a choice. It was, right, okay, I've got a little bit of money left, not enough to pay my rent. I had a hundred pounds left. I thought if I give this to her, it might have been able to smooth things over, but then we'll still be in the same situation going forward. I know, I'm gonna pack my bag. And this was the end of January, 2016. Um, and I thought I'm gonna go and get help and I'm going to walk the entire length of Britain in recovery, finding help for me and others, raising awareness of both mental health and homelessness whilst in recovery, telling my story to literally everyone, any newspaper, BBC television, ITV news, everyone I told my story to, um, over a period of three months. So I packed everything in a bag and my tent, got down to Land's End and walked the entire length of Britain. And, well, I mean, that must have, that, well, it's, it's a challenge anyway, the fact that you don't have any money. I mean, did people help you on the way? Um, and, and who heard your story? And, and how did that help you? It was really good because it acted as a, a process for me, a processing out some of the trauma because I was telling my story and by telling our story and feeling valued, feeling hurt, feeling accepted, it started to change perceptions for me of me being useless, worthless. And so actually this person does matter, this Steve, inside of all the, everything that's gone on, this exterior has been built up by my parents, by education, by everything in the past, isn't who I am. So I'm just peeling back the layers. And who's Steve underneath all of this? And people were starting to listen. People said, oh gosh, all of that that you've gone through and you're still doing this for, for other people, giving back. Um, and then it was my realization was that I am actually starting to heal through giving back. And what I would do of an evening is, um, because I was on such a, a, a small budget, uh, of every evening, I would go and find a soup kitchen that was serving the homeless. And I would serve at the soup kitchens before asking if they had any spare food. So this really did help. And I created um, what is now my business on a mobile phone whilst walking Britain in recovery. Well, I mean, just, you know, if anyone is listening out there and, you know, you went through a hell of a trauma and, and that went right back, obviously, to, to, to your brother dying and everything that you went through as a family. Um, and then, you know, for, for me, 
you know the drugs etc that's almost symptoms of what you because of the trauma that you you were you were feeling it it's never about the drugs itself or the alcohol it's about why you're taking those into that extreme in, in the first place um, and then the doctor wants to put you on meds which i think a lot of, of a lot of doctors that's their first instinct you know get them on an antidepressant yet you were able to bring yourself out without going on any, onto any medication I mean, if there are people watching this and going through anxiety, depression, um, and, and to be honest, and, and let's come, we'll talk about that just afterwards, even, even thinking about taking their own life, um, because let's face it, suicide rates are up and they have been up over this pandemic. We're all in social isolation. That's not normal by any stretch of the stretch of the imagination. People have lost jobs. They're in, under financial stress. There's all sorts of different triggers um, for uh, depression, anxiety. What are, is there any key tips that you can give anyone um, that doesn't want to go that don't want to go on medication? Because that isn't the answer. Absolutely. And you're right, I chose not to take the medicated route. And that was a choice. Um, I was offered medication to sleep. Um, and I declined just quite simply because I didn't want to put anything more into my body that I didn't know about than what I already had. It was far too intoxicated um, previously for me to take anything more on that I wasn't aware of. So I declined and I took the holistic approach to cure. Part of that cure was getting out and exercising every single day. I never stopped, even though when I was in some of my worst places, I never stopped exercising. And it's something that I do religiously every day now that keeps me well. And I haven't been unwell for five years. Um, so getting out, connecting with people, um, getting fresh air every single day. And then looking at the things that we can control. So some of the things that we can do for ourselves. So it's like we could plan a holiday. We could plan a holiday for the end of this and look forward to something. We could speak to family. We could speak to friends. We could speak to loved ones. We've got so many different ways that we're able to communicate now, but just differently. So whilst we might not be able to go and see somebody face to face, we can still connect with those people over uh, over a zoom um if the connection's okay that is um but there are many great ways that we can connect so you know think about what keeps you well on a daily basis so it could be you could listen to music um you could watch something funny you could plan for something at the end of every single day a treat um i'll share with you what i do um so every three days i will plan to have a nice really hot bubble bath now i do have showers in between those days yeah. uh, but i plan for a nice hot bubble bath at the end of the evening um just because it gets me through the day and i say you know what i'm going to unwind tonight switch off social media that's another one control the amount of news that you're seeing um and think about this as well if your sleep is disturbed where is your mobile phone so that blue light from the screen is going to impact your sleeping patterns. So something that I've done recently, and I say recently, I've done it for about three months now, is I don't have my mobile or any electronic device in my bedroom. Um, apart from last night, where I only got a couple of hours sleep uh, because I've just been working lots. Um, but prior to this, so good for sleep, not having that electronic device and do you not find, because I'm, I'm, I'm terrible, I do have my mobile phone next to my bed, and 
And the reason I justify it is because it's, it's my alarm clock. Um, and I also listen to meditation music uh, and guided meditation before I fall asleep, which unfortunately is all on my phone. So I tend yeah. to fall asleep with, with it sort of playing. Um, but then I can wake up in the middle of the night and, and then not be able to get back to sleep. But it's usually not, it's, you know, it's just sleeping patterns. But yeah, if there's any, any solutions around that. Yeah, um, I used to do something similar. And um, sadly, now with age, I have to go to the bathroom at about four o'clock every morning, it just happens. Um, but what I tend to do or what I used to do at that time in the morning was look at my phone and go, you know what, I'll just have a quick look. Oh, no, Facebook has sucked me in. Next thing you know, it's half past six in the morning, you go, oh, no, I've got to get up now. So I, I stopped doing it, just simply stopped doing it and changed the form of meditation that I was doing into reading a book. And so just reading something before I go to bed, but not too much stimulus yeah. around you or in the room before you go to at least an hour before you go to sleep. Yeah, I'll try that, Steve. Um, and, and we touched on meditation. Has meditation played um, a big part in sort of your recovery? Yeah, it has. In fact, um, I chose to look at many different holistic approaches to cure. So the very first one was counselling, which most of us are offered. Um, but what I need to stipulate with counselling is it is will only allow that person to talk. There isn't any way of going into processing out any underlying issues. So it's good um, as a talking therapy. So counselling is great. But I looked at things like um, DBT, hypnotherapy, timeline therapy, NLP. I use different events, different self-help books, different personal development books that I could uh, to help me to understand, to go back to basics, to process this out. A big one for me as well counselor sorry coaching um so i started coaching with somebody and we were going back not too much into the past but they were helping me move forwards so this with trauma therapy coupled with trauma therapy so um, any psychological help coaching really helps to move forwards so the psychological would go back into past events and the coaching would help me to move forwards um, and with this, when I was going through the holistic approaches, I thought, well, with the experience that I now have, I'll go into work for somewhere like the NHS, because at this point I was ready to start helping other people. So I had a three-year break, had a three years out of work. And in that three years, I was literally doing therapy every single day. If you think about everything that had gone in, in, in my childhood all the way up until 39, it all had to be processed out. And sadly, it's not an easy process because as we know with well-being, the person's being is multi-dimensional. That means we're going to need to look at different elements, financial well-being, spiritual well-being, all your beliefs. How are you as a person? Every aspect of you will need looking at to bring back into balance. So went into work in the NHS as um, an individual placements manager. And this was leading a team of employment specialists, helping people that had experienced poor mental health or mental illness back into work. And what I was finding is the people that are going back into the workplace were largely 
ignored if they're started to an issue started to arise. So if a mental health issue started to arise in the workplace, that was ignored, and then they were told that they had to leave or sack or whatever. And I thought I recognise these patterns, and people were coming back into our services. So I thought I can do more at this point, and so I went on mental health first aid course suicide first aid course and then I became a tutor in both of those courses so at that point I thought well you know what I'm going now to leave the NHS and create my business literally my whole concentration into my business Um, and this again it was it was about three years ago that it happened but only launched really within the last year and a half and how was that that last year and yeah, I was going to say, because it's been a pivotal year and a half, right? It's, uh, uh, it must have affected yes. the business. Um, and, and yeah, tell me, how, how did this, the whole pandemic affect it? Um, beginning, uh, I was doing a lot of face-to-face training. So I was going into organisations, we were doing face-to-face training, but mental health at this point still wasn't, it wasn't at the forefront of organisations' mind. It wasn't at the forefront. It wasn't a strategic priority. It wasn't a must-have. It was a nice-to-have. Okay, if we understand a little bit more about mental health training, you know, or mental health, maybe we can help a few people. But then COVID hit. And then COVID came in, and it was like everything that I'd had with face-to-face, my training. That, oh gosh, no, that's it, and everything got cancelled. So everything got cancelled at the beginning, very almost a year ago. And I thought I need to move and pivot very quickly. It didn't happen like that. Almost eight months later, I had my first um, first booking for a client that said, I'd like you to deliver the emotional wellbeing first aid toolkits for us. Um, and we want this done over a period of a week in two weeks time. Gosh, I haven't even got it ready. I haven't got it ready online. Um, that I thought, right, I need to really pull my finger out and switch everything to online. So everything that I had face-to-face went online. And then from that point onward, it's just exploded. Um, I've been busy every day, week on week for the last few months. And it's because right now, mental health organisation, for the mental health of the people in the organisations, is now a strategic priority. So sadly, the work I do underpinned by negativity but if we think about now the amount of organizations that have said actually we don't know how to do this we need the specialists and coming down to to the mental health and taking it to to sort of the extreme level i mean that the suicide rates we know are up um, and we still don't know unless you know statistics are um, of, of the full effect of this because we're just going through it now but certainly I've heard that stats are up um, certainly the first six months were and I, and I think that they are increasing uh, if what should somebody do firstly if they're feeling if they're having suicidal thoughts or if they know somebody that they suspect may be thinking about taking their own life is to approach them and to ask them. So I'll give you some stats around uh, suicide. So sadly, we don't actually know how many yet because it's such a long process. 
um, for the coroner to give the verdict that it was a suicide. So it can be anything up to six months. We're only just literally going to see what those statistics are coming through now. We know that there has been an increase. We know that more people have struggled. Um, more people now have social media and they're able to say it. And there's small signs. In fact, nearly every suicide, almost everyone that ends their life by suicide gives signs consciously or unconsciously. So it's really important that we have to spot those signs and we spot. It could be something like we go on a Zoom call with a friend and they're looking disheveled, they're looking really unkept, there's beer cans, there's drink in the background, they've been sleeping on the sofa, they're always in their pyjamas, they're not their normal self. Or they could be saying things like, um, you know, it could be, you know, soon all my problems will be over, nobody will worry about me soon. Or we need to look on social media as well. So let's think about what we've got in front of us, which is Facebook. Is your friends starting to put out more, or somebody you know, are they starting to put out more posts that are negative? Um, so we need to have a look at those small telltale signs as well. And what the, again, what we see in that person, are they normally really well kept? Are they becoming socially isolated? Um, are they doing things that they wouldn't normally do? Are they drinking more? Um, all these things are small warning signs. And it could be that that person is struggling. Um, another uh, a really big one right now is people not using the camera on Zoom. So they don't want to be seen. Mm-hmm. They're making excuses and um, uh, lots of workplaces saying this as well. And a lot of their people don't jump onto Zooms anymore. Now, many people that are in the workplace have just been forced into unknown. So they've just been told they've got to work from home, next to no internet connection, working from a table in the kitchen, um, and all these unknowns to them. If we think about, you know, the those people in high-rise flats, those people with children, animals, that have just been told, right, you've now got to work from you know, the, the suffering that they're going through. And if we've never been taught how to talk about our mental health or express how we're feeling, and this is happening within organisations, there's not the circumstances or there's not the appropriate time if none of the mental, if none of the managers have been taught about this, for an employee to say, well, actually, I've really been struggling. So organizations now are being proactive in their approach and saying we're going to have training around this the managers will be trained in it one in 20 people at any one time in the united kingdom can be having thoughts of suicide one in 20 wow steve listen i mean i, I, I this is such um i mean it's, it's such a big it's a big, a big topic and i think it's it's one that the government really needs to address i mean um don't get me started on, on my views of what's going on um, but I think this is going to have so much more impact on, on people's mental health than their actual physical health. Um, because un- unfortunately, this could go on much longer than the lockdown being over. We talked about post-traumatic um, uh, stress. Now, that, that happens after the event. Um, just quickly, finally, on that topic, what what are your views about this um, in terms of post-traumatic stress? Say after after we come out of this, after lockdown's finished, do you think people are still going to suffer? 
Oh, gosh. Yeah, absolutely. Um, sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but if we think about what this actually is, it's a global traumatic crisis. And in a crisis, one of two things will happen. That person will be instantly affected by what's going on now. Or it could be if we take my example of, you know, years ago, I experienced a sudden traumatic loss. We think about all those people that are currently experiencing the same sudden traumatic loss. They've had a family member go into hospital. They've not been able to see them. And the next thing, they've just been told that they're no longer here. Imagine the impact of that on people not being able to see a doctor or a professional, or somebody that could help them with their mental health. The Centre of Mental Health actually estimate that an extra 10 million people after this pandemic has eased off will need support for their mental health. So those numbers are absolutely astronomical. So it, with post-traumatic stress disorder, like you say, it can be triggered years later. So whilst it might not affect somebody right now, this might happen again in the future, and this is when panic sets in, and that's when that post-traumatic stress could make itself known. And we've, we've, we've talked about sort of spotting the, 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 the signs of people that ha have got suicidal thoughts and um, are suffering anxiety and depression. How can people reach out? What if, if people are watching this and they want to talk, talk to you, or what organizations are there that you would sort of advise them reaching out to? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's very good. There are so many currently right now really good organizations for people that want to access them in different ways so we've got samaritans on 116123 which is a confidential service that anybody can call um, also we've got a text-based service called shout on 85258 so if you text 85258 and um, there's a trained professional doctor nurse practitioner um, psychotherapist at the end of this line willing straight talk to you straight away also, we've got the Staying Alive app. This is a fantastic app. So if anybody is thinking about ending their life by suicide, they don't want to reach out, don't want to talk to anyone. It's a fantastic app to be able to use to give you a suicide prevention plan and things to be able to help you if you're having thoughts of suicide. Remember, you have to remember this as well, that thoughts of suicide are not actions. So we need to find out, is that person having thoughts of suicide? And we can say from there, we have a conversation with them. You know, for, for most people, it's a scary thought. And if we say to a person, the myth is, if we say to a person, are you thinking suicide? We would encourage them to do it. But I'm going to give you a quick example of how this doesn't work. Okay, Sonia, would you feel comfortable giving me at least half of your salary for the next six months? No. <laughs> There you go. That's how that works. So that's the closest that I could get to saying to somebody, are you thinking about suicide? We wouldn't encourage them to do it. That's the closest analogy that I could find. Yeah. If we ask somebody about suicide, it actually gives them the opportunity to say, well, actually, yeah, nobody's ever asked me before. This is something that I teach, something um, within the classes, something within the training. And you can reach out to me for uh, training and it's corporate training that I do. Um, so I've worked some with some huge organizations. If you want to go and have a look at www.mindcanyon.co.uk, you can have a look at the courses that I do. There's also some helpful resources and there's a page on there called Useful Contact Numbers, uh, 47 different contact numbers for professionals. I'm just going to leave you with uh, one final resource, if possible. 
and yeah, that absolutely. is a dot. And we'll put all this in the show notes. We'll put the links in the show notes as well. Fabulous. Okay, Hub of Hope. The Hub of Hope is a database for any mental health organisation all over England. So you just download it from Google Play or the App Store, type in your postcode and it will bring up any mental health service with a 25 mile radius of where you type your postcode. Um, so national database of any help that is available within your geographic. Steve, that's all great. And as I say, we'll put we'll put the links in. So if anybody um, wants to find out more about Steve and get access to those numbers, they'll all be in the show notes. Steve, we've reached my final question. And um, that is, if you were to write a message in a bottle for future generations to find, what would that message be? Would be reach now for help isn't a weakness. It's a strength. And if you can't offer anybody anything else, Offer them hope. Steve, I love that. Thank you so much. You're doing such an amazing job. So relevant right now. Um, thank you from the bottom of my heart and wishing you lots of, of love and, and all the success in, in the future. Hope you enjoyed the show. Remember, there's a new interview out every Monday. So hit subscribe and like and you'll get it straight into your inbox.